Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to All the Wiser. I'm Kimmy Kolf. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every inspiring interview you hear, we donate $2,000 to charities around the world. I believe in the power of storytelling to inspire us all to think differently about the world around us. So I've combed the country for some of the most jaw-dropping stories you have ever heard. People who have been to the brink and back, stories of survival against all odds, and whose lives have been changed in unthinkable ways. Today's interview is with Dan Brodsky-Chenfield. Dan is one of the most accomplished skydivers in the world and the survivor of a deadly plane crash. The plane crash happened on a spring day shortly after Dan and his skydiving team boarded the plane for another day of training. Their plane crashed that day. 16 of the 22 passengers on board died and Dan was one of only six survivors. It had been more than a month when Dan finally woke up from the coma with no memories or recollection of the crash. His family and doctors eventually told him about the details and the loss of his friends and teammates. He then realized in the time that had passed, he had missed their funerals and the opportunity to grieve with and comfort their families. We have interviewed a lot of optimistic people on this podcast, but I think Dan is pretty high up there. In spite of being told he should never skydive again, Dan was not going to take this for an answer. His commitment was to heal himself, his team, and his community, and get them back to doing the thing they loved most. Sky was home to them, and Dan was convinced that returning there would be a part of their healing. In the months and years that followed, Dan and his team trained relentlessly and would go on to win countless national and world championships and become one of the most elite teams in the sport. His message is definitely one of optimism, of resilience, and of allowing yourself and trusting yourself to have really big dreams. Here's today's conversation with Dan Brodsky-Chenfield. Good morning. Thanks for having me. And I should say you woke up very early to be here. What time did you get up this morning? I actually got up at about 3.45, but that's normal for some really disturbed reason. (laughs) I don't set an alarm for that time. I just get up and get the day started. Dan, how would you introduce yourself to our listeners? I'm a... uh, a father and a husband and a business owner, an author, and uh, I've been a skydiver for 40 years now, and it's something I'm very passionate about. Started uh, with the sport just because of a dream of flight, and I thought this is the closest man can come to to flying, Uh, and then managed somehow or another to turn it into somewhat of a career. Um, It's been wonderful. 
Tell me about the backdrop of your childhood. What were you like as a kid and what was your upbringing like? I had the very good fortune of being born into the most amazing family you could ever ask for. And when you're little, you think this is normal. You know, when you're little, you think whatever your family is, is just the normal average family. And uh, it wasn't until I was a lot older where I realized, well, this is actually the exception to be in a family like this, which really gave me every opportunity in the world. It was an incredible, incredible family. Why? Why was it so incredible? What are the things that, that made your family special? First is Mim Brodsky Chenfeld, which is my mother. <laughs> she has an amazing way of always seeing the positive in everything, uh, no matter what it is. Even if it's something I look at and I see nothing positive about it all or someone that you see nothing positive about, she will find something positive and wonderful about each person and bring it to their attention and bring it out in them in a way that I've just never seen before with anybody else. And being her son gave me the chance to think whatever I thought of, whatever I imagined, whatever I wanted to do was okay. So an early example of optimism in other people and in pursuing your dreams. Absolutely. Where did you grow up? What was the the town? Uh, Mostly in Columbus, Ohio. So I know in college and leading up to college, you were really passionate about theater, being a theater major. And that focus shifted to skydiving. When do you first remember wanting to skydive and why? You know, every little kid has their own little imagination and their fantasies going on. And for me, a big one was the dream of being able to fly. And I remember as a little kid just pretending I was flying all the time, diving off diving boards, pretending I was flying. So you've had this childhood dream to fly. For those of us who have never gone skydiving or jumped, what is the emotional experience of a free fall? Well, at first, it's overcoming fear. That's what it is initially, and it's an amazing adrenaline rush and it's it's overcoming the fear of it because it's so foreign to you but once you start to be able to control yourself in free fall it transitions from just this falling to actually flying because in free fall you feel like you're flying you have complete control relative to people we're in free fall with we have complete control complete maneuverability we can move anywhere and once you start to feel that and you have that control and you start to relax and the fear goes away to free fall by yourself is just a very peaceful, soothing feeling. It's you look around at the incredible sky. You're this tiny little, tiny little ant in this whole huge, incredible sky. You can see the horizon. It can be very relaxing and very soothing. So after that first jump, did you know on that day that this was going to be your future? At what point do you become hooked? Well, I wanted to free fall. I wanted to fly. And Back then, you, you weren't able to free fall on the first jump. You had to jump using a static line. And the static line is a cord that's connected from the top of the parachute to the bottom of the airplane, and it automatically deploys the parachute for you as soon as you exit. So you had to do five of those jumps first. So after the first jump, I thought that that's not what I wanted to do. I want to free fall. I want to experience free fall. So that meant that I had to stay and do 25 jumps, five which were the static line, and then they let, they let you start free-falling by yourself. But I knew it was something that I just loved more than anything I'd loved before and that I would continue doing. 
Talk to me about the early days of your career. I started working at the skydiving center immediately. First thing I started doing was mowing the grass and cleaning the toilets and washing the airplanes and doing anything that I could do to, to trade for skydives. Uh, then I became an instructor. I became a parachute rigger. I became a pilot. Got all the different types of ratings you could do to be more active and more involved within that, then I discovered it was a sport. And then when I say sport, that it was a competitive sport. I didn't realize that was the case. So progressively, skydiving is becoming your life. You're at the center every day, you're working, you're diving. I know the sport takes a huge physical, mental, and financial commitment in a sense. And we're going to move on and talk about the plane crash that really was a defining moment in your life and and changed the trajectory of your life. If you can set the stage, where are you in your life personally and professionally before the plane crash you survived? I had set my goal at that point on winning the World Skydiving Championships. To win the World Skydiving Championships, you have to win the National Skydiving Championships. So you make the the sacrifices that you need to, to be able to, to make that commitment and to follow through. So I'd be, been living in my, uh, in my van for a few years, living at the skydiving center, just for the purpose of saving money. You know, I couldn't afford to have an apartment and to pay for the skydives and pay for the training. And we had uh, had a few different teams over a few years, gone through a few different teammates, but gotten to a point where we were one of the top teams in the nation and, and in the world. And I had had a chance to come to California to skydive Paris, which is where I still work now. And I had been starting to coach a lot of the teams because of how far our team had advanced and uh, had the first chance to have a certain level of sponsorship out here in California. So this was the, the dream of a lifetime. You know, you talk about living your dream. I was honestly, truly living my dream. It was everything I could ever have asked for. So as you said, you're living your dream and this devastating, horrific plane crash happens. Six weeks after that crash, you wake up from a coma with a broken skull, severe head trauma, collapsed lungs, among many other serious injuries. What is the first memory you have of waking up in the hospital? The first and only memory I had waking up in the hospital was of what seemed to be a a conversation I had just had prior to waking up, where... I was in free fall. I was just in free fall. And it was different though. It was slower. It was quieter. Free fall is fast and loud. And this wasn't. It, uh, it was much slower, almost as if the wind was just suspending me and I wasn't descending at all. And it was a, a much lighter wind just kind of holding me there. And I remember just looking up and seeing my teammate, James, who is like a little brother to me. And I always had this big, huge grin on his face, no matter how much pressure there was on the skydiver in competition or or anything else. And he flew down to me and he said, Danny, what are you doing here? You're not supposed to be here. You have to get back down there. He said, you have to go down and get control of the situation. And I asked him, are you going to come with me? And he said, no. He said, I can't that I can't, but it's okay. And he said, tell my mom I'm okay. 
And I put my hand on his and his hand on top of mine and my hand on top of his. So we had our normal stack. And he looked at me and he said, uh, I'll see you later. I'll see you later. Definitely wasn't a goodbye. It was, I'll see you later. And when I woke up, I woke up with this in my mind. Like this had just, this had just happened. And the only thing on my mind is, what's the situation? So the last room, remember him saying was you have to get control of the situation. But I had no idea what the situation was. And then started to find out from there. So that really is your last memory as your eyes open. What happens next? What do you remember about your first interactions with your doctors, with Christy, your now wife, your mom and dad? It didn't even occur to me that it could be a plane crash at first. And I asked, you know, Christy, what happened? What happened? And they were, I guess that Christy and the whole group was very concerned of, of if and when I woke up, how were they going to tell me about James? How were they going to tell me? And she was kind of dancing around with, with you know, when I asked her what happened, what happened? And uh, I said, I know James is gone. You know, how's the rest of the team? And she was just kind of shocked. And how could you, how could you know that? And I said, he just told me. And then she told me that there was a plane crash, but the rest of the team was okay. And in, in comparison, the rest of the team was okay. Uh, relatively speaking, no, nobody was okay. But, and uh, at first I thought it must have been a, a small plane that it was just the team in and then realized it was a plane with 22 jumpers on it and it was way worse than just the five. Because you had no memory of the flight. I have no memory, yeah. But it had, in fact, been 22 people on the plane, 16 of whom passed away in the crash. How did you process that? It's pretty overwhelming to hear and to hear, you know, the names, who was, who was on the plane. Most of these, you know, it's, it's a pretty tight community and, and many of the people were, were my friends. I think what hit me even more is when I, I was assuming all this had just happened. And then she told me it was six weeks ago. And then I realized this is history already. This is already history. And all the people around me, all my friends, family, doctors, they've been dealing with this for over a month already. They've, they've buried most of these people. Obviously, your losses were just compounded on so many levels. But you write beautifully in the book about, you know, what you just addressed, sort of losing the opportunity to collectively grieve and honor as a community. And all of these incredible things that I read about happened. The father of the only woman on the plane, a 27-year-old girl, said he remembered taking her to the playground as a little girl and that that was her place of joy and that she had found her new place of joy and free fall, and he jumped in her honor so he could experience that. The other thing I read in your book because of your memory loss is that Christy would have to tell you this information as if it was the first time over and over again, which had to be beyond difficult for both you and her to experience that first time of the conversation over and over again. Is that correct? There were several things that she would tell me which I would try to process and try to absorb, but then sometimes forget she said it all, other times not be certain about it, and at other times just not in belief 
Like she just, I remember, I remember being told this, but this can't possibly be true. And needing to be told again, it's true. Because if you, once you accept that this is the truth and there is nothing I can do about it, you can move on. And you obviously don't remember the crash or the circumstances surrounding the crash, but in hindsight, can you explain what happened that day and why the plane went down? Well, things are always in aviation, a combination of, of errors. We lost an engine shortly after takeoff, which is the worst time for that to possibly happen. If you lose an engine in a twin-engine airplane, had we been at 10,000 feet, it would have been no incident at all. Had we been at 5,000 feet, it would have been no incident. Had we been at 1,000 feet. But when it happens right after takeoff, the pilot has to respond correctly and immediately. And if there is any error from the pilot with the timing of when you lose the engine, that can lead to a, a crash. And that was, it was a combination of those things. And you were one of six people who survived this crash. What do you know about your specific circumstances and what led to you being a survivor? Well, at that point, we didn't use seatbelts and skydiving airplanes. And the plane went in nose first. So if you were seated in the back of the airplane, the only people that lived were seated in the back. So you come out of the coma, Christy tells you what has happened and all of the people who you love that you have lost. As far as your medical condition, what are the doctors telling you about your prognosis and your future? You know, the doctors always give you the worst case scenario of everything. So the doctors said, you broke your neck. We don't know if there's going to be any kind of paralysis or not. They uh, said you're... You know, you've had, you know, severe brain injury, so we don't know about the the memory loss uh, and how that's going to recover. You collapsed one lung. That should be okay. They heal over time. But they said being this fragile, you should never, ever participate in activities like this again. Anything where you could have, you know, lots of, of impact or a, a high-activity sport. But they say that no matter what. They say that regardless. Uh, but it was very apparent to me relatively quickly that as bad as I was, I was so, so lucky to not be worse. I was so lucky to not be completely paralyzed. Did you have survivor's guilt at any point? With James, mostly. I had really, I taught James to jump when he was 14 and he had just turned 21. So I asked him to come join the team when he was 20. And we had always talked about doing a team together. It was from, you know, from when he was 14 and about winning the world championships together. And, and this is when I finally had the opportunity with this, uh, with the skydiving center sponsoring the jumps uh, that he would be able to afford to do it. And I was really pushed him to come. And he, he was on the fence a little bit for a while. He was uh, already flying and he was thinking about a flying career. And I was like, you can get back to the flying career after we do this. You know, you, you got to come. And I had, he wanted to be there and it was his dream also, but I definitely twisted his arm a little bit at first to get him to come out there and, and to have it end like this. Yes, to the survivor's guilt. So eventually you're released, both physically and mentally explain your current state at that time. 
I, well, physically, I was just still very fragile. You know, I, I was, uh, I weighed, I lost about 40 pounds. So just, you feel, you feel brittle. You know, you feel like if I bump into something, I'm gonna, I'm gonna break here. But I felt good enough that I had a place to start. I had a place I could start recovering from. Mentally, of course, I thought I was, I thought I was fine. <laughs> Christy would tell you otherwise probably, but I thought I was fine. The problem with memory loss is you don't know what you forgot. So you think, you think I don't forget anything until people start telling you about all the different things. But as they would tell me, then more memories would, would come back, which today I'm still, there's still many things I'm sure I don't remember. Are you experiencing depression, PTSD? No. 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 I think... Uh, Having had that experience with James made this whole thing easier is uh, not the right word, but had I woken up with no clue of anything and had no idea what had happened or what was going on, I don't think I would have been in nearly as good a position as being told by James to get down and get control of the situation. So I woke up asking questions and knowing that he was okay. When you share, what I hear is that he gave you in that conversation a sense of peace and a directive. Yeah, exactly. Which were incredibly helpful during that time. What role did Christy and did your mom play in your healing? Well, I mean, Christy was there all the time. She was the perfect balance of uh, of tough love where the things I really couldn't do she would do for me but if there was any chance of me being able to do it for myself at all she kicked me in the butt and got me to 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 go do it for myself and to want to do it for myself and mom just the ongoing unconditional love and the motivation of just to take the grief off my mom I need to recover just for her sake so she has uh, her son back to 100% health. It sounds like early on, you know, even before getting out of the hospital, that, that skydiving will be a part of your future. You're going to find a way to do it safely. It sounds like yeah. a little bit of a new way with the, the new realities of your body. Did you have the support of the people around you to return to the sport? I don't think most of them believed it at all because basically started to started to put the team back together still in the hospital and i think for the most part people thought just let him go <laughs> just let that's not let's not discourage him now at least he's got something going on he's got some motivation just just let him go but without believing that it could actually it could actually happen what do you remember about your first jump after the crash well when I woke up, I had a halo brace on. It's just like a cage that they screw into your skull to hold so you can't move your head if you have a broken neck. And after they took it off, I moved my head and my whole body went numb immediately. And they realized that, well, that halo didn't fix anything and they had to go in and operate on my neck. And I asked the doctor, how long will it be till I can skydive again after this? And he said, 
if you think I'm going to tell you it's okay to skydive, it's not happening. And I said, okay, I'm not asking you to do that. But if, if you were, how long would it be? And uh, he basically said, after 10 weeks, the surgery itself will be strong enough that you won't break your neck there. You won't break it there again. But it's, your neck will be so weak that I can't tell you what's going to happen anywhere else. Uh, and 10 weeks went by. I was in the airplane with the team because I would go up with them so we could watch the videos in the plane. I was basically coaching them. And I thought, I can go. I can go now if I want to. So I had the parachute that I knew would open very softly and land very softly. And for the first time, I knew that if I want to jump right now, I can, I can do it. But it was, I was scared, you know, I was scared to do it. And I remember watching the team exit and looking out the door after them and just trying to think, should I do it, should I do it, should I do it, should I do it? And then just, you know what, the hell with it, I'm going. And immediately I uh, was just hit the wind uh, and flew down to the team and immediately felt like I was, I was back home again and I was free again, free from the halo, free from the crash, free from the chair I was sitting in for so long and back at it. So you were back. I was back. <laughs> Can you tell me about who was lost on the flight that day? There was our four-way team, which is five people. It's the four people and the camera flyer. Uh, there was a team I was coaching from Holland called Tomsket with five people also. Then there were several instructors and video flyers who were taking new students up on a jump and then two pilots. So you take your first jump and I would, I think anybody listening to this could already say that you were before the accident living a big life. You, you were living your dream. And I think a lot of times people can be asleep at the wheel and something like this happens and they may have a bunch of shifts and changes as a result. But you were already so alive and so present. What was your shift? What was your change? I don't know that there was as big a change as there was confirmation of, of what I was doing. And when you have something in your life that you're this passionate about and, and you're that driven to excel and you're pushing yourself to become better at it every day and the better you become, the more that you love it. And you've got a team that you just love doing it this with and it's a, a challenge together. And you've had the opportunity to do that. Once you've experienced that, you don't want to settle for anything else. And when I realized as badly as I was hurt, I still think I can do this, then there was no question as to what it was going to be. And if I couldn't do that, I would have tried to find something else that I was that passionate about because life is so fulfilling and has so much meaning and, and reward when you're doing those kinds of things that you don't want to settle for a life that's less. What becomes your new dream at this point? The goal remained to win the world championships. But that is just a goal that's out there on the horizon. There's so many goals that have to be done before you can do that. And for me, there was, there was many. One was recovering myself, getting healthy myself, hoping to be able to bring the life and, and love and enthusiasm back to the, the team and to the community because the community had been devastated by all this. And to just make it to the national championships that year, just to make it there for starters. And that's 
the different steps that lead up to, to going to a world championships. Eventually, you go on to be a six-time world champion after being told that you would never skydive again. What was the first marquee moment, the big triumphant moment that happened as you worked to not only heal yourself, but heal your team and heal the community? I think my first jump back was pretty huge for myself, certainly. Uh, For the team who didn't know I was going to show up in free fall behind them. And for people to, to see that if I was able to recover like this, then hopefully we all were together, making it to the national championships that year. And even, you know, we didn't win this year, but we made it. We made it. And just being able to be there, being able to and be doing what we, what we loved. But you kept pursuing the dream, and the dream very much became a reality. It very much became a reality, and it was uh, very funny because when you finally win, right, when you finally win, there's this goal that you're after. And, and until you get it, you think this is the prize. This goal is the prize. Having achieved this goal will then make everything else worthwhile. Uh, and I was amazed by how after winning, that's wasn't that big a deal. <laughs> the win itself wasn't the big a deal. You think back on what was, was everything it took to get there. And where you actually, I think you become a winner, you know, quote unquote, you become, uh, you build the character it takes, you practice the, the commitment and the dedication and the hard work all in the process. You do that whether you're actually lucky enough to win or not because the winning in competition is is not necessarily up to you. I remember landing from a first world championships where we where we won and landing from it all and there was, you know, champagne and you know, celebration out in the landing area and and everybody walked away and was sitting there like was that it? I guess that was it, you know, and thinking thank goodness that I really didn't think it all rode on this. If I thought that was everything then, then what had we lost that meant that everything we worked wasn't as as worthwhile, everything we did, all the work that we did to get there. Um, So it's amazing how everything you do towards achieving that goal, it's all about the journey, quote unquote, is so true. And the goal is just the icing on the cake. It's such an important life lesson, and I have found it a very hard one to live. When you can live that way, life is is much richer and more rewarding and fulfilling for sure. What did your experience teach you about fear and adversity? Well, adversity is everything. I mean, if you if there's no adversity, you're going after some really lame goal. If you're if you have a worthwhile, ambitious goal, something that you're really passionate about, it's going to be nothing but adversity and obstacles and difficulty to get there. Fear, you really need to be clear that you have something to be scared of. I remember being scared and actually thinking through, what is it? What is it I'm scared of here? I'm scared of what other people are going to think. I'm scared of letting my teammates down. I'm scared of not performing up to what I'm capable of. Well, what's, but what are you scared of other than your own insecurities? There's no actual damage that can be done to you. So there's many times that we feel fear when there's actually nothing in reality to be scared of. 
And I think when we start to be clear on uh, what the real things are, it's much easier to, to accept that fear and, and handle that fear. I want to talk to you a bit more about James. I know you called his mother and shared the story that you so eloquently shared with us earlier in this conversation. What do you remember about the conversation you had with his mom? I remember it pretty clearly. I mean, she was devastated, obviously, as you could, as you could imagine. But she also knows me very well. She's a very good friend of mine. James' whole family worked at the skydiving center with me in, in Ohio. So she knows that I wouldn't say this unless I thought it actually happened, unless this was a reality for me. I wasn't going to make something up and go take her. As much as I would want to comfort her in some way, she knew that if I was sharing this with her, this is something I thought was very real. And I remember that at that time, it may have brought her some marginal degree of comfort, but it's still so devastating and so overwhelming that I think she's more comforted now by it. But at that, uh, at that time, being you know, only six weeks or whatever it was after the actual accident, it wasn't going to be enough to comfort her. You were one of the six to survive the crash. Do you have a relationship with the other survivors today, your teammates? Uh, I do. Some, you know, some more than others do stay in touch. Is there a bond? I would imagine. Certainly. Yeah. yeah. How would yeah. you explain that? It's hard to, to put into words exactly. You, we all feel similar and, and amazing loss and this incredible gift and luck to have made it. And to see each other like that, it reminds us of, man, how incredibly lucky were we? Why? Why were we so lucky? There's something, something special that we share uh, that more than anything reminds, when we get together, reminds me of that. I know safety and being a, a huge spokesperson and advocating for the safety around the sport and continuing to make it safer. So for those of us who may be terrified of jumping ourselves, raising my hand, <laughs> or for the people who say, I can't believe you've made a career out of jumping out of airplanes, how safe is the sport of skydiving? It is not inherently a safe sport by itself, but it is a sport that you can do safely. Driving a car isn't inherently safe but you can do it, you can do it safely. I've got 30,000 jumps. I've never been hurt skydiving. There is last year in the United States, I believe there was 15 skydiving fatalities, millions of jumps made. Statistically, it's, it's not bad, but if it's the kind of a thing where you wanna go push the limits, you wanna go, you need an adrenaline rush out of this, you wanna go push it and push it from the safety perspective, you're going to get yourself in trouble. When we get hurt skydiving or someone gets killed, it's because we did something wrong and we could have avoided it. What is the greatest lesson that skydiving has taught you? Greatest lesson? I think it relates to what my favorite thing about skydiving is. No matter what else is on your mind, no matter what else is going on in your life or distracting you, from the moment you exit an airplane to your parachute opens, there is nothing else on your mind. You're able to, to let go of everything 
and just live in the moment and enjoy that for the pure, pure joy and love that there is for that activity itself. And it's 50 seconds, but it's 50 absolutely glorious seconds. Uh, and it's nice once you have this and you experience this, there's so many times that there's things in our lives that are such a distraction to us and weighing so much on us that we can't, we can't sleep at night. We wake up in the morning thinking about them. It keeps us up. We're driving. It's, it, it's on our mind all the time. It's like we can't escape it. But we can't fix or take care of these things if we can't escape them also. They take over our lives. And to experience that it is possible to let them go. It is possible to let all these things go and just appreciate the moment that you're in. Skydiving gives you that. And once you're able to experience it in skydiving, it makes it much easier to be able to appreciate the other things. If it's just, you know what, I'm just going to appreciate this sunset for, for the moment and not worry about all the other things that may be going on in your life. Complete and utter presence. Complete and utter presence. It's an amazing gift and one I think you need to experience in one way before you can often recreate it in another. That makes a lot of sense to me. What do you hope that people take away from your story? More than anything, I think most people, most kids have dreams like I did. My silly, silly dream about flight, about human flight, right? Every kid has something like that and adults have that. Uh, I think that we are too often don't allow ourselves to pursue those things, don't allow ourselves to go after that things, those things to whatever capacity. And I can't imagine life without doing that. And I'm not suggesting everybody jumps out of airplanes. It's, it's, it's not for everybody, and I don't even suggest it to my kids at all. But to find something in their lives that 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 turns them on and that drives them and that makes them push themselves and, and provides the opportunity for growth in so many ways. Um, when you find something like that in your life, to, to take it, grab hold of it, do those things. Don't, don't hide from that. Don't worry about, and what holds people back the most is they're, they're worried about failing. The failing is not doing it. I know your story has already impacted people in that way and will continue to do so. And I'm grateful that part of that impact will hopefully be in people listening to this podcast today. Thank you, Dan. It has been a true pleasure. And thank you for the long drive here, but most importantly, for being so open in this conversation. Thank you very much. We're going to end with something fun called Rapid Fire. I know you're not a podcast listener, so I'll let you know what it is. I'm going to throw out a question or a couple words and then just say whatever comes to your mind. Favorite city? Columbus, Ohio. Best childhood memory? Diving off the high diving board. The trait I admire most in people? Optimism. If you could have any superpower? Hello? <laughs> it would have to be fine fly to the rescue or fly and retreat, whichever the case calls for. The thing you wish you knew at 20? That it's not about the win. Guilty pleasure? Don't have any. Man, you're good. <laughs> Greatest hope for your kids? That they pursue their dreams with the same passion that I did. Tell our listeners where we can find you online, um, on social media, check out what you're up to in the world. Um, my website 
danbrodskychenfeld.com. And I am at Skydive Paris. That's where I am every day, loving what I do and trying to share it with as many people as possible. So if anyone wants to skydive for the first or 30,000th time, <laughs> you're this their man. Where, this is where you go. And we're going to link to your book in the show notes above all else, which I hope everybody will check out. It's a beautiful book. Thank you. Thank you again, Dan, for being here and enjoy the rest of this beautiful day. Great. Thank you very much. Today's interview with Dan supports Ambition. Ambition is a nonprofit based here in Los Angeles that partners disadvantaged youth and students in underserved communities with incredible mentorship opportunities and hands-on experience inside the walls of great businesses. They are creating opportunity, connection, collaboration, and mentorship where it did not exist before. These kids are receiving real-world business experience and being mentored by the likes of Richard Branson. To learn more about their work, you can check them out at ambition.org. In the show notes, we've included a link to Dan's book, Above All Else, and also a link for Skydive Paris. This is Dan's business in Paris, California. And if today's episode has somehow inspired you to jump out of a plane, I would highly recommend you make the trip to Paris and jump with Dan. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our sound engineer is Kelly Kramerick, and our associate producer is Kessie Hollister. Thanks for being a part of the All the Wiser podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast, read our show notes, or get in touch with us at allthewiserpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at All the Wiser Podcast. Send us a note. We would love to hear from you. And as always, thanks for listening. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.